And if you've been lifting heavy weights for a long period of time, uh, if you've been trying to run fast, jump high, do awesome things in the gym or on a field quarter pitch, chances are you're really good at going forward. You're not as good at going backward. Hello and welcome to the Physical Preparation Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Robertson, and this is our September 2022 Q&A episode. Now, I don't know about you, I'm having an absolute ton of fun recording these shows, tons of great questions, and in fact, so many good questions this time around that I simply can't answer them all. So I'm either going to have to kick those into next month's show or potentially, probably with some of the questions that I have, turn them into blog posts or articles of something of that nature because they're probably too expansive to answer as just one section of a show. Now, normally we do like the weekly recap and all that, but I am going to skip that this week. I hope you're cool with that. There's just a lot, (laughs) a lot going on right now. Uh, This week has been pretty darn busy, even though the coaching hours have gone down a little bit. I find sometimes that first month when coaching hours dwindle just a little. There's all kinds of just life things to catch up on. So I've had random appointments this week. I've had a couple one-off clients that I've had to meet with. I've got four podcast episodes that I'm recording, including this one. Uh, But I've also got an awesome lineup this week, guys. Alex Natera, uh, Jen Marcello Reiner, Drake Berberet uh, from Hawk and Dynamics. Like really, really excited about these episodes. So it takes me time to prep for those. I am dog sitting uh, for an indefinite amount of time for one of my basketball players. So I've got his dog. So that's keeping things spicy. And then last but not least, my guy Matei from Slovenia is in for Bill's Intensive this weekend. So he's going to be living in our basement. So if you're cool with me just skipping all of the usual fanfare, we're going to take a quick break. And then we're going to jump into this awesome episode because I think I got a ton of questions you're going to want to hear the answers to. Today's episode of the Physical Preparation Podcast is brought to you by Exerfly. If you're unfamiliar with flywheel training, it's a method of strength training where your athletes generate resistance by using the inertia of a flywheel instead of traditional gravity-based resistance training. By accelerating and then decelerating a disc, your athletes generate resistance at all phases of the movement. This allows for high force training as well as eccentric overloading without the need for crazy heavy weights. I first got interested in flywheel training because I wanted my athletes to be better prepared for sport. Standard free weight training is great for the early preparatory phases, but I wanted something that could improve the rate of force development in both the concentric and eccentric phases of the lift. Most importantly, I wanted to make sure my athletes were prepared for those eccentric forces that they'll encounter in sports. And with their motorized technology, the Exerfly allows you to increase the eccentric phase of the lift from anywhere from 1 up to 80%. The biggest objection I had early on was learning a new piece of tech or equipment. After all, sometimes these things sound great, but really aren't all that functional, or they take forever to figure out. But luckily, if you take the time to watch a few short videos and experiment a little bit, you'll be using the Exerfly like a pro in no time. Setup is quick and easy, and my athletes are absolutely loving it. Last but not least, there are tons of different exercises and variations you can use as well. Whether we're talking squats, hinges, presses, split squats, if you can think of it, chances are you can figure out a way to do it with the Exerfly. 
The really cool thing is ExerFly is used by numerous teams in the NFL, NBA, over 50% of the English Premier League, and numerous Olympic developmental programs as well. Now as a small business owner, I normally think, hey, this is way outside of my budget, I can't afford it, because we all know in a small business, every penny counts. But ExerFly has you covered there as well. They offer 36 month interest-free financing, so you can get started ASAP with your training and pay as you go. And when you factor in a 30-day money-back guarantee, two-year warranty, and free shipping, I really believe this is a solid investment. Look, the bottom line is this. If I don't really love something, I'm not going to promote it on my show. I love my Exerfly, the results I'm getting with it, and I think you will as well. To learn more, head over to exerfly.com so you can start building some savage athletic beasts in your gym. Again, that's exerfly.com. Okay, my first question today comes from James. And James wants to know, quite simply, how does the ground prep series work? And he wants to know, why do I feel so good after I do it? And when do you use it? So meaning, when do I use it? So if you are unfamiliar with the ground prep series, this is basically a very short video, uh, probably like four or five minutes that I posted on YouTube a year or two ago. And essentially what the ground prep series is, it's a bunch of ground-based activities that I use as a bridge. So if I'm setting up my R7 workout and R1 is my release, R2 are my resets and my breathing activities, those are generally a little bit more static. I'm trying to create some space in certain areas or I'm trying to turn on a certain muscle group. And at the end of R3 are my very like dynamic activities, right? Maybe your big bang mobilization exercises or some low level buildups to try and prep for the session. I really like this ground prep series as a bridge between R2 and R3. Now, again, I'll put the, the video link in the show notes so you can find it. But if you don't go watch the video, here are the exercises I generally do. I'll do like a cat camel activity. I'll do what Bill calls a rock and roll or an egg roll where I'm rolling back and forth uh, on the backside of my body. I'll do a hook line breathing exercise. So basically in the position you would start a glute bridge, reaching really long with my arms, either just with my arms or holding a kettlebell, working on trying to just get some expansion. I'll do a rib roll or a bretzel, something of that nature to try and get some T-spine rotation, open that up. And if you're doing a bretzel, you get the hip extension, you get a little bit of hip internal rotation as well, just all kinds of good stuff there. I'll generally do some kettlebell armbar variations and a leg lowering. So it sounds like a lot, but you can bang all this stuff out in three or four minutes. And again, as a bridge from your R2, your resets, to your R3, your readiness, I find it works really well. So those are the exercises. Now, James wants to know, why does it work? <laughs> and, you know, I would love to say I have all the answers to all the things. Unfortunately, I don't. But I think it does a couple things that most of our clients need. We know a lot of our clients are getting pushed forward right? We know that the backside of the body tends to be tighter, stiffer, uh, less expandable, depending on how you want to think about it. But bottom line, we're getting pushed forward. So what it does is it creates some space front to back. It re-expands us front to back, which allows our center of gravity to shift backward. So that's a really big part of this. And if you've been lifting heavy weights for a long period of time, 
Uh, if you've been trying to run fast, jump high, do awesome things in the gym or on a field quarter pitch, chances are you're really good at going forward. You're not as good at going backward. So I think creating that space front to back is the starting point. So if you look at a cat camel, uh, rock and roll, a hook line breathing, all of those are A to P expansion based activities. Now, once we've done that, then we add in all those rotary type activities. So then we put in your rib roll, your armbar variations, your bretzels, whatever activities will help us kind of turn, right? We have to have a space on the backside to turn into. So we create that space up top and then we start to restore that rotation after the fact. So that's why I think it works. Um, again, uh, all for a better explanation. If you put this in front of Bill, he'd probably have a much more high level and well thought out answer. But in my kind of layman's terms, that's how I understand it. And that's why I feel like it works so well. Now, the final question that James wants to know is, well, okay, when do you use it? And again, I kind of alluded to, I like the pre-workout. I like it as a bridge from my R2 to R3 as I get older. And as I sit more, you know, there's times of the year where I sit more or there's times of the year where I'm just on my feet a lot. I just feel like it helps me feel looser before my sessions when I use it there. So I like it pre-workout. There's days where if I'm doing maybe more of a conditioning type day or I'm doing more of a lower intensity day, maybe I'll do it at the end of the session to make sure when I walk out of the gym, I feel really good. One of my favorite times to use it is on off days. So especially those days where maybe I'm coaching for a ton of hours that day, or if there are days where I'm just you know working on an article or I'm working on videos, I'm working on creating content. If I'm sitting a lot and I'm not moving enough, off days are an absolute game changer with this one. But let's be honest here, my friend, basically anytime you feel stiff or locked up, I can almost guarantee that this ground prep series will help loosen you up and get you feeling better. So James, I really hope that helps and I hope it answers your question. Okay, so my next question comes from Zach. And Zach really has two questions here that he asked independently and I put them together to make it a little bit easier to follow his line of thinking. So the first question is, what's your process for prioritizing the needs of your athletes when you have them for a short period of time? And then his second question was, when you have a long time with an athlete, how do you pick where to start and how to prioritize? So this is two great questions because there's plenty of times where I don't have somebody long enough and I can't check all the boxes in training that I'd like to. And there are a handful of times where I feel like I have like just an inordinate amount of time with specific athletes for whatever reason, right? Either they're in between teams or they have an extended rehab period or something of that nature. So if I have somebody for a very short period of time, the shortest I ever had in an offseason with Chad Marshall, I don't remember the year, but he went to the MLS Cup, pretty sure they won. He played incredibly well that year. I think he was best 11, uh, so the top 11 players in the entire league. And December 9th, he finishes. I think he took a week off, and then he showed up in Indianapolis and said, okay, I have three and a half weeks before I have to report for January camp, which is basically for the U.S. national team. So if you have a very short period of time, here is the question that I always ask myself. What can they not get in season? So I'm going to repeat that. What can they not get in season? 
So if you're playing soccer, even if you showed up in horrible shape, which you don't want to do, you can improve your conditioning as the season goes on. But if you're training and you're practicing every day, what generally tends to happen is you don't have enough time for strength development, again, because you're practicing or playing multiple times per week, and you don't have time to develop connective tissues. Okay, so those are two of the big things that I'm always focused on in the short term. If I have a very short turnaround time, I got to work on those things first. Now, there are other things that I'm thinking about as well. In a short period of time, I want to improve their movement efficiency as best I can, especially if they have a long competitive season. A lot of times these guys have fallen into certain postures, certain positions. They've lost the ability to access certain movements or certain ranges of motion. So I want to improve their efficiency as quickly and as efficiently as I can. So when I'm thinking about that, I'm also always thinking about any low-hanging fruit from a movement or performance perspective. Like if there's anything like glaringly off when I evaluate them, I'm going to attack that. Because again, these are easy things that I can win in a short period of time that I think will pay long-term dividends. We talked about connective tissue development. I think that's a really big one. Doing everything that we can to get some volume underneath them, strengthen the tendons, the ligaments, the joint surfaces. And then the final piece, and it's not the case for Chad because he had just played an 11-month soccer season, but if an athlete does have a quick turnaround and they don't have great aerobic development, we're going to attack that as well. Because if we can develop a more robust aerobic energy system, we know they're more likely to stay healthy. They're going to get through practices more safely and more effectively. It just wins in every sense of the term. So those are some of the low-hanging fruit that I'm looking for in the short term. Now, if I have a client for a longer period of time, there's just more time in general to tease out what we want to get out of every block. We can have these really smooth transitions from, say, an accumulation block a force development block, a power development block, maybe a power endurance or like a realization block. We just have time to check all the boxes to make sure everything is smooth. So the question here and what Zach wants to know is, well, how do you prioritize? And I think this is something that people almost get too caught up in because they assume that there's guesswork involved. And my job and I think my belief is to take the guesswork out of this. So I want to evaluate. I need to evaluate these people, okay? What are their limiting factors? And two like totally different ends of the spectrum, for a lot of the young kids that come into our gym, their biggest rate limiter with regards to performance are physical outputs. They're not big enough. They're not fast enough. They're not strong enough. And I've joked around on here like numerous times. But like 90 to 95% of the client consults and the parent consults that I do for the gym start with something like this. Little Johnny is great on a ball or Johnny is amazing shooting a ball, but he's not fast enough to get open or, you know, just doesn't have that quick first step. So for a lot of our young athletes, the limiting factor are these physical outputs. We have to get them bigger, faster, stronger, more explosive so they can get on the court or get on the soccer pitch. Now on the flip side of this, with a lot of my, I would say older athletes, and I use that term kind of 
kind of vaguely because a lot of the guys that I work with might have been professionals for six or seven years, but they're like 26, 27, 28 years old. So for a lot of them, the limiting factor is going to be, can they stay healthy over a 100 plus game NBA season when it was soccer? Can they stay healthy over the course of a 30 plus game MLS soccer season? So for them, we're chasing resiliency. We're chasing, again, that movement efficiency. We're chasing that connective tissue development. We're making sure that we have a really, really good foundation to build them from. And so that when they do get into the season, even if they fall backwards a little bit, right? Because, you know, you hear people argue about in-season training and maintenance, and that's a a topic for another day. But the fact of the matter is, if you have a 40-week competitive season, you're probably not going to maintain all of your strength training progress for the entire year. So your job is to give them as big of a buffer as you can so that if they do slide back a little bit, they're still in this acceptable window of strength and connective tissue development and performance. But for me, here's kind of the the approach. If I wanted to summarize it, Zach, I would say evaluate, determine some KPIs or key performance indicators, things that you deem most important for the client or athlete you're working with, and then that's going to drive your decision-making and your program design process. So again, Zach, really hope that helps, and I hope it answers your question. Okay, this one is going to be a lot of fun, my friends. This is from Michael, and Michael wants to know, how do you write programs incorporating both strength and conditioning together, but not choosing or using conflicting methods or techniques? And again, I just love this question. I think it's super common. I think it's something that people want to ask uh, or maybe afraid to ask or they don't know how to put the pieces in place. And so I really think this one alone is worth the price of admission. I would say if you're not already, go seek out and learn everything that you can from Joel Jameson uh, because his work was so foundational for me early on. But I'm going to try and attack this in a couple different levels here, right? So The first thing that I want you to remember, Michael, is that all energy systems are turned on when you need energy production. So whether it's squatting a 1RM or running an ultramarathon, when you need energy production to complete a task, everything turns on, but it also comes down to the power and the intensity and the capacity necessary to complete the task. So a 1RM... Your aerobic system is going to turn on, but hey, you know, like you probably take five, six, maybe eight seconds if it's a grinder and then you're done. So you don't really need that much aerobic development to squat a 1RM. Same thing. When you go out and you take those first steps of a marathon or an ultra marathon, you know, your all your systems are going to turn on, right? Your alactic, your lactic, your oh my gosh, you're aerobic, all those systems are going to kick on at the same time, right? And somebody out there is going to hate the terminology that I use. That's okay. But, you know, look, if you're running a marathon or an ultra marathon, that ATP PCR system isn't super necessary. Like you don't need those high levels of output to sustain that because you're trying to sustain this very low level activity for a very long period of time. So that would be number one. Remember, all energy systems are turned on when you need energy production. And remember, we've got those three energy pathways, right? So I think of this as a continuum. So if you imagine from left to right, on the left-hand side, you've got your anaerobic alactic, 
or your PCR, your phosphocreatine system. So anything under eight to 10 seconds, is probably gonna get used there. Then as we go to the right, now we've got our anaerobic lactic or our glycolytic system. This could be our 15 seconds to two minutes, kind of that intermediate zone. And then last but not least on the far right hand side, trailing from you know two minutes to infinity is your aerobic system. So once you understand that all the energy systems turn on initially, right? And they're just there to meet the needs and the demands of the activity. And we have those three systems to kind of support us every step of the way. Our next job and what you want to understand is how to minimize that conflict or that interference between different methods. So here's what I would mean by that. A lot of times what you'll see is people just start doing all this random stuff in their workouts. Right. So they're doing like heavy weights and then they're doing like glycolytic intervals. Right. They're going like 15 seconds on 30 seconds off as hard as possible for 10, 15, 20 rounds. And then on their off days, they're going out and they're running like a 10K or 10 miles, whatever the case may be. And so what they're basically doing is telling their body, hey, adapt to all this stuff, please. <laughs> and it doesn't work like that. Right. Like you're you're literally giving your body all of these mixed messages on what it should adapt to. So I like to think of it like this, and this is what got me through physiology. I'm a biomechanist at heart. Physiology was always way harder for me, which is probably why I stayed away from conditioning for as long as I did. But physiology all comes down to efficiency. So, hey, if you're gonna do a bunch of low-end aerobic development, your body tries to adapt to that stimulus. Right, it's going to make your left ventricle uh, a little bit more elastic, right? So you're going to get more blood in and more blood out. So there's heart changes, there's aerobic changes as far as aerobic enzymes go. Your body's going to create more aerobic enzymes. You're going to have more capillarization, right? So just everything about your body becomes more efficient if you're giving it a bunch of aerobic activities to adapt to. So now imagine you've got all these aerobic adaptations you're chasing, but then every other day you're doing a bunch of like anaerobic glycolytic stuff because those are the two that just don't jive, right? Your aerobic development and your anaerobic like glycolytic lactic stuff, you can't work these synergistically or simultaneously because they're competing for the same resources, okay? So to minimize, if you remember again our spectrum, right? You got your alactic stuff on the left, you got your aerobic on the right. You got your lactic glycolytic in the middle. I like to start at the far ends of the spectrum. Okay, so let's say we're going to do a three-month training block. On the left-hand side, uh, or excuse me, in block one, we're going to work on the far left-hand side, and we're going to work on the far right-hand side. So at, as a general rule in block one, I want connective tissue development. I want low-end aerobic development. So how does that work, or how does that look in the gym? Well, I'm probably gonna do my low intensity strength work, right? Your basic foundational stuff, start to build a general strength base, build those connective tissues. I'm not trying to kill somebody with intensity yet, but a little higher volume, lower intensity strength work with your lower end aerobic development work. And that could look like cardiac output, your steady state type work. It could be tempo lifting. Um, you know, there's a lot of options that you can put in there. You could even do, uh, if you're familiar again with Joel's stuff, some of his, not explosive repeats yet, but some of his just like pure power, aerobic power type stuff. So what I would do is, let's say I'm taking a prowler. 
push a prowler as hard as I can for five seconds. So it's very alactic, and then I go 50, 55 seconds rest. So now it's very aerobic in nature. So hopefully you can see how we're tying those two ends of the spectrum. So the way I think about it is we've got like a really wide V. So far left hand end of the spectrum, far right hand end, we've got this wide V. And then this V just steadily narrows up the longer the off season goes on. So in block two, now we're gonna start to push the intensity in the weight room a little bit more. We're gonna chase more like force development uh, gains or, or force production type gains. And we're also going to start to do more repeat alactic and aerobic development. So higher intensity strength work combined with, hey, when we're doing uh, our explosive repeats, now we're going to start to tighten up those windows. So now it's five seconds on, but maybe we're getting into 40 seconds off or 35 seconds off. So the athlete still has enough time to recover, but we're still trying to work at a very explosive rate and we're still forcing the aerobic system to work in the background to replenish and refuel those energy stores. So maybe it's explosive repeats. Maybe it's high intensity continuous training. Maybe it's more, uh, Joel calls them like threshold training type intervals where it's like three on, three off, two on, two off. Uh, I think of those as like uh, just pure like aerobic power uh, intervals as well. But you can see where we're narrowing that V. Right? And then right before somebody goes to camp, that's where we would do like our power and our sports-specific endurance work, and we'd potentially tap into some of the lactic development. Now, if you look at most team sports, whether it's football, soccer, basketball, they tend to be more alactic aerobic. You know, there are sports that are a little bit more lactic dominant. Luckily, I don't work with them, but I do expose my athletes to some lactic development before they go to camp. Because I can look at all the time motion studies that I want. Maybe the coach hasn't paid any attention to those. Or they're still using conditioning tests that are archaic and old. Or they're running two-hour practices and conditioning is a punishment. So they're trying to just beat the crap out of their clients or, excuse me, out of their athletes every day. So before somebody goes to camp, I'm really focused on speed and power, right? I want them to feel bouncy, fast, explosive, uh, and then when we get into their conditioning, we're going to probably do a little bit of lactic development just so they're exposed to it before they head off to the camp. So the first time they go lactic in a game or in a practice is with me and not on a court in preseason. And then the final piece I would say here is I always want you to think about being tissue specific. And a lot of times we like to nerd out on, oh, this is the like perfect energy system program. They need to be in zone three, da, 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 da. Like that's great. But don't forget, like if you've ever played basketball, like my worst story is when I played basketball and to get into shape one year, my coach made me run cross country. So my aerobic development was off the charts. By the end of the year, I was running like my best times of the season. And then when I got into basketball, it felt like I had no conditioning at all because the conditioning that I was doing was super general and not at all specific. And it definitely wasn't specific at a tissue level to what I would do in a basketball game where I'm planning, running, jumping, cutting. So that would be my final piece of all this is if you do train athletes, make sure that there's an emphasis on tissue and sports specific conditioning at the end. So Man, Michael, I told you, that's a mouthful. I really hope it helps, but think of that V. Think about working on the far ends of the spectrum 
where you have the least likelihood of getting those mixed messages or sending those mixed messages to the brain, let it work on other or the far ends of the spectrum and then narrow up as you go. So right before they go to camp, they feel like they've got all the tools. They're fit, they're fresh, they're healthy, they're explosive. And I think that will make the biggest difference for the clients and athletes you work with. Woo, okay, that was good. Hope you enjoyed that one. If you did, make sure you post it on social somewhere. Okay, next. This one comes from Alec, and Alec wants to know, how do you reconcile between increasing strength but also restoring expansion or movement options or movement quality within a single program? Man, Alec, this is a great question. It is also super loaded. So a few things to think about here. First off, never forget about the newbie effect. And the newbie effect is simple. If I take a 14-year-old kid that's never done any kind of physical activity before, I could make them go out and run uh, three miles every day. They could squat and bench press every other day, and they'd get better at all of it, right? Like in two months, they'd run a faster three-mile time. They'd have PR probably every week on their squat and their bench press. And that's great, right? They're a newbie. They can train everything at once and they can get better at everything because they've got this massive window of adaptation. Now, the downside to this is the more stuff you do and the longer you train, the more specialized and the more focused you have to get to see positive changes. So imagine a super extreme example of this, right? If somebody squats a thousand pounds, it might take them three six, nine months to set another PR, and it might only be 1,005 or 1,010, right? And they have to direct all of their energy, all of their training focus onto those specific activities. So their window of adaptation is much, much smaller. So instead of trying to do it all in one program, what I tend to think of is using various blocks to achieve or develop different capacities. And it's kind of interesting the way these questions came because they really kind of link up with each other. But that first training block, I'm all about restoring movement quality, uh, restoring the ability to compress and expand in the areas that I need it to, right? And I think sometimes people hear compression and they think it's a bad thing. Well, you know, if you're just expanded all the time or if you're expanded in one spot and you can't compress that spot, that's a problem too, okay? So you're looking for bounce is what you're really looking for here. The ability to move into areas where you may not have a lot of motion. Uh, The ability to compress and expand on opposite sides of the body. I think that's what's really important. So I'm generally gonna chase that early on. And then as I start to get into deeper levels of the off season, or as we start chasing more performance related goals, Now, if I'm chasing force production, well, I don't want to lose all the progress that I just made. So my goal is to try and maintain the progress that I I built out early on, create that buffer zone so that as we start to chase more, maybe force production, speed production, power production, I don't lose that. So what I tend to think about instead of doing it all in one block is to think about stacking qualities on top of each other. So if block one is hey, let's build this low-end aerobic development, connected tissue strength, and movement capacity. That's block one. 
And then as I go to block two, I try and keep that foundation. And then now I want to stack some strength on top of it. And I want to, along with that, create some higher end aerobic changes. And then I want to maintain those as best I can when I go into block three. Now I want to layer in speed and power and maybe just top it off with a little bit of lactic work. So this way you're building chronologically or sequentially to build a more robust athlete. But I think at the heart of this, the big issue, so let's take somebody that's maybe trained for three to five years and they put an emphasis on strength. It's going to be really hard to balance expansion and creating movement options and strength because strength development is essentially the ability to compress because they're on opposite sides of the spectrum. So it's going to be hard to chase both. It'd be like chasing those anaerobic uh, lactic or glycolytic adaptations while you're also chasing aerobic changes. It's very hard because they're kind of diametrically opposed to each other. So instead of chasing them at the same time, I think it's a way better setup to stack them and try and chase them sequentially versus trying to chase them or get those adaptations at the same time or in the same training block. Okay, last question for today comes from Polyus. Polyus would like to know, how do you know when you can safely implement explosive exercises for normal gen pop clients? Like, how do you know when they're ready? And I think this is a fantastic question. Uh, I'm going to go to my grave saying that I firmly believe everybody is an athlete, regardless of their upbringing, whether they played sports. Inside of everybody, there is an athlete. And I think 90 to 95% of the people that walk in your gym, if polled and, you know, put no restrictions on them, they would say, I want to look like an athlete. I want to feel more athletic. Most people tend to associate better with that style of physique than they would a bodybuilder or a power lifter. So we train everybody like athletes, but how do we do that? Like, how do you kind of prep somebody to do these things? And I think a lot of times, or at least initially, one of the big pieces of blowback that I got from this was, you know, I'm telling in these seminars and I'm going out and I'm speaking and I'm like, I believe everybody's an athlete. And people kind of behind your back or on the internet are like, oh yeah, so what they're doing like max effort jumps? No, <laughs> no, we're not doing that day one. Um, you know, if we are going to do those things, we're going to find ways to do it safely and effectively. So kind of some boxes that I want to check along the way are, number one, we want to do a few blocks of connective tissue work. Right? So we want that low-end strength development, a little bit higher volume, lower intensity, get the joints, the tendons, the ligaments prepared for doing these explosive muscle actions. You don't start with them, you build up to them. A second thing that I'd be looking at are body mass and body fat percentage. So let's say somebody's 50 to 100 pounds overweight. In a lot of cases, this would preclude them from doing jumping activities, right? The ground reaction forces would be massive. And a lot of times there are comorbidities or lifestyle things internally that could be impacting their connective tissue development, right? Like they could have Achilles issues, they could have patellar tendon issues that they don't even notice or, or realize because they're not moving enough, okay? So I wanna get their body mass or their body fat percentage in kind of a more normal range before we do anything jumping related. But that doesn't mean they can't swing a kettlebell, which would also be great for fat loss. It doesn't mean they can't throw a medicine ball. So there's lots of options there, 
but I would like you to think about their body mass and their body fat percentage first, trying to trend it down before you get into some of these higher level activities. But I think to kind of spin this back around, a couple things you need to ask yourself. Number one, what exercises do you want to do? Because there's a lot of stuff that doesn't involve jumping that can look fast and explosive. I already named a couple. You can throw a medicine ball. You can swing a, a kettlebell in about a thousand different variations. You can do fast activities with battling ropes. You can drag a sled. You can push a prowler. I'm sure I'm forgetting a whole bunch. There's all kinds of aqua bag activities. There's so many things that you can do. So you have to ask yourself, what do you want them to do? What exercises are you preparing them for? And then the second question becomes, what have you actually done to prepare them? Okay, so let's take that extreme example. Let's say we've got somebody that's 50 pounds overweight, but they were an athlete back in the day. Maybe they played volleyball or basketball and they wanna be able to jump. They don't wanna go out and jump and like play a high level game anymore, but they wanna be able to do a box jump. Well, okay, we start with all the foundational stuff, right? Do like low level, maybe isometrics early on. Uh, have them start doing all your foundational squatting, hinging, lunging activities, low intensity, higher volume, build a connective tissue base. Once they start to feel better, once their body fat trends down or their body mass comes down and those ground reaction forces won't be so high, now work them into a low level jumping progression. All right, band assisted jumps. Start there, little baby pogos. It doesn't have to be high intensity stuff. Band assisted jumps into jumping rope into you know your lower level box jumps from there. It doesn't have to be overnight. You could tease this out over three, six, nine, 12 months, but it really comes down to what exercises do you want them to do? And then how are you gonna go about progressing them? Just like playing a game. If you want somebody to play high level basketball for 36 minutes, figure out what the end goal is and then reverse engineer it. Figure out the goal and work backwards. The last thing I would say here, there's really no right or wrong answer, but again, with general pop clients, one thing I always try and remind myself is there is absolutely nothing I have to do. There is no exercise that I have to do to get them results. And I think this is really liberating because I used to think, oh man, everybody's got to squat and bench press and deadlift. And the day I realized, hey man, they don't care. Like most people don't care at all what they squat, bench or deadlift. They just want to look a certain way or they want to feel a certain type of way uh, in certain clothes or how they move like those things are way more important to them than what they do in the gym so i would always say there's no right or wrong answer here but err on the side of caution tease it out take all the time that you need because ultimately they're going to feel better you're going to have more success and i think just in general you're going to feel better about the process as a whole All right, my friend, that does it for September's Q&A episode. Really hope you enjoyed it. Like I said, I love doing these. It allows me some time to answer questions that you might have about training, about coaching, lots of program design ones this time, which I love talking about. So if you ever have questions, feel free, direct them to me, mike at robertsontrainingsystems.com. You can also DM me on the gram, Rob Train Systems. Wherever you like to listen to these shows, wherever you want to interact, send them my way and I'll try and get them into next month's episode. So one small ask for you as well. If you are not already subscribed to the show, 
man, my friend, stop playing games. Do it right now. It will take all of two seconds of your day wherever you consume podcasts. iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Google Play, Amazon, literally anywhere you consume podcasts. Go there right now today. Hit the subscribe button so you know each and every week when a new episode drops. So again, my friend, as always, thank you so much for your support. Love and appreciate you. And we'll be back next week with a killer new episode. Until then, have a great day.